0: When it comes to work, what is your big why? If you didn't need the money, would you still show up to your job? I'm John Weems. I've spent half of my career in the corporate world and the other half in full time spiritual guidance as a pastor. I respect people of all views unless they are totally closed minded a holes. Welcome to Beyond the Check, the podcast where we talk about the big why of work and life. And my guest today has spent more than two decades as an attorney and investment banker in Silicon Valley before pivoting to serve as VP of Social Impact for a cutting-edge technology company in the Internet of Things IoT space. Harry Plant is also no stranger to uh, world involvement uh, and prominent guests in his home, including the likes of President Barack Obama. Uh, Welcome to the program, Harry. Thankful to have you here today. So, uh, Harry, tell us uh, a little bit about what Aris does and your role.
1: Great. Well, so uh, Aris is an Internet of Things company, Um, Internet of Things often seen as IoT, the abbreviation, and we are an end-to-end modular technology platform that enables uh, companies to change the way they operate from selling unconnected products to connected services. The example that most people see in their day-to-day life are their connected cars um, or thermostats or... Refrigerators uh, in the in the common joke that'll tell you when you need to get milk, but generally the ability to reach out to devices and change and change them, adjust them from a cell phone, a smartphone app, uh, and we provide a platform that lets companies and cust- and users do that. Uh, what you know we offer is a you know a, a, essentially a global cellular platform, much like a Verizon or an AT and T, um, as well as software applications on top of that that customers can use to build out what is a different model of connecting than a typical cell phone company would use. My role as head of our uh, social impact sector is to reach out to customers that wouldn't necessarily have access to these products and services, either because they don't know about them or they think they can't afford them, and try and make, you know, Internet of Things services available to companies doing social impact.
0: Okay. And... A little on the corporate side, who are some of your larger clients that people may have heard of? I know there are many.
1: Um, Many uh, among our customers are Mitsubishi Motors. Uh, The cars that are just going online now are using our platform to connect in the way that um, other connected cars operate. Several other car companies are are our customers, and you know, in general, lots of people that lots of companies that you don't know, because they're, you know, we sell to businesses, and they sell to consumers. And it's a very business to business type of a market that we're in. Okay.
0: Well, Harry, we'll circle back to some of the ways that Aris is impacting the world. And, and there's some exciting examples I, I know our listeners will enjoy. Great. Uh, let's rewind a little bit. Uh, what was your first job?
1: So I, my first job was as a lawyer, I came to Silicon Valley in 1979 started working as a lawyer in '82 when it was still Silicon Valley, as opposed to software and apps and uh, all the telecommunications things that are today, Internet of Things. Um, and so I've worked as a lawyer with companies, you know, going back to you know the early '80s, um, in the just the start of the technology boom.
0: What was your first job as uh,
1: you know as a child?
0: Or, first, or did you become an attorney when you were twelve?
1: First job as a child was working working at my dad's company. My dad was in the scrap metal business, and it was sorting different categories of metal uh, for resale. Uh, if you, for anyone old enough to remember Goldfinger, the scene where they bailed the car, my dad had one of those. So in his in his in his company, and so um,
0: we were we recycled metal. Yeah. Did Did he expect you to stay in the family business or? was there a process or discussion there
1: um, I don't think he expected it I think the I think you know it's the business changed over years it was actually a business that my great-grandfather started uh, but the industry's changed so much and I also made it clear that I wasn't going to stay in the business so it moved on from there my brother by the way still is in the business although it's not owned by the family it's not a family business anymore
0: yeah, so head enough to college, which for you was Northwestern, correct? Right. Uh, what was your your goal or or you know something you were considering at that point?
1: You know, it was to get away from home and to explore, to begin to be able to explore ideas and to think on a level that one doesn't get to think when you're in high school, and to and to get away, you know, to build some independence.
0: Yeah, and where or, or when? Uh, did money enter the equation for you? Did you reach a certain point when that was a motivating factor? Or you know, let's talk, many of our listeners work because they have to, or, right. or some aspiration there. Right. Let's talk a little about your relationship and processing of this money question.
1: So, I grew up in a very well off family. So, I'm very fortunate that way. And, you know, I've worked, but I worked when, you know, when I got out of school, I started to work like, people tend to do and, you know, did odd things before that over the, you know, in the summers or whatever. Um, I don't think it was ever an affirmative choice of this is what I want to do. It was sort of the path that one fell into. And, uh, you know, I went from college, ultimately to law school because it seemed interesting and it was, you know, a way to moved to a career that looked interesting and potentially to a career that gave me the opportunity to do other things, but ended up working out well, you know, in the field of law for the better part of 15 years, was it 15 years, 15 years, uh, and then it was time for change and time to move anything else, but I don't think it was, there wasn't any concerted, there was clearly a need to work to build a lifestyle and to do things, but it wasn't so much, this is what I want to do. This is a nut I want to have. This is the airplane I want to fly.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, any experiences in your, your legal career that that stand out as formative or, you know, times in which you, you knew you were doing what you were supposed to be at that time?
1: You know, again, I was, I'll come back to this as a theme. I was very fortunate to Come out to Stanford. I mean, I grew up on the East Coast. I managed to get into Stanford, and so I came here. Uh, you know, coming to live in the Bay Area in the early, late '70s, early '80s is just a remarkable time in the history of you know this country and maybe humanity. Not necessarily always for good, but certainly remarkable. And you know, to have started to work at a law firm centered around Silicon Valley in the early eighties, it's just incredibly fortunate and lucky. Uh, so you know, the people I got to work with, you know, any job has an amount of drudgery associated with it. It's not it's work. Uh, I was lucky enough to be in a job where there were incredibly interesting people doing incredibly interesting things and you know, with a background that that was able to help them think through problems and solve them the law was just a means to an ability to have discussions with people about how to get from point A to point B in a thoughtful legal and practical way and you know that was something that uh, was fun to do there were as far as a formative experience which was your question i think it was the realization on a particular occasion of sitting in a room of the sitting in a room as a probably twenty six or seven year old with some academics, business people, fairly senior, people who have been doing who've been working, you know, more or less successfully for many years, you know, sitting as an advisor to a board of directors and watching the individuals try to make a decision and make the obviously wrong decision. Uh, and because of my youth and experience letting them do it when it would have been so easy to say, look, that's the wrong decision. Here's the one you need to make and here's why you need to make it. And so, you know, that was, again, probably 27, 28 years old when it was just clear you know, I know enough. I, you know, I understand the process enough where it's it, it's incumbent on me to just push the dialogue in the right direction.
0: And so, when when your ten years, fifteen year mark comes and you're you're ready to shift in a different direction and become an investment banker, tell us a little about that process. Sometimes people assume you serve a certain number of years at a prominent firm like Wilson and mm-hmm. you're set. You stay there. Um, what moved you to change course a little?
1: Well, I think it was was partly it was exactly that. It was that I'd been there for, you know, been there for going on fifteen years, and I could see that my life wasn't going to change dramatically over the next ten or twenty years, and so I opted for a change. Second reason was they asked me. You know, I had done work with the company I went to work for, and they were interested, so they obviously had some sense of my ability to do what they wanted, and. You know, I mean, partly back to your question of money, their economic model was better. Mm-hmm. Uh, at least over the short term, it was a better model to move to investment banking than to be in uh, law, assuming I'd be successful at it, which was a reasonable assumption. And so, you know, all of those apply. I think the short answer is the idea of doing something for 60 years is was not appealing. And so it was a good time for a change. Yeah.
0: So we have a a range of listeners from people very early career to to later. Sometimes private equity firms and venture capitalists and investment bankers all get blended together. What's distinct about uh, what you did in investment banking that someone may learn who's considering a a shift in that direction?
1: Oh, so investment banking, like law, is very analytical. It's, It's, you know, what I did was not terribly different. Moving, I moved from one side of the table to another side of a table on very similar types of transactions. Uh, you know, the idea is to come up with creative ways to solve business problems using law finance as a means to get there. Uh, there are other uh, venture capital to me is very different. Private equity is somewhere between the two uh, in terms of. You know, on a scale of analytical to intuition, venture capital is almost entirely, to me, intuition. Uh, you, can't, you can't solve those problems with – with a, there's not enough analysis in the world just to figure out whether it's a good venture capital investment. You know, whereas law is very much of a pro, an analytical process. Um, banking is an analytical process. Uh, hard work, but still a process. Private mm-hmm. equity, mostly the same way.
0: So, so fast forward to uh, about five years ago. Uh, how did you find your way to to Aris in uh, in this role? Did it exist before? I doubt you applied off a of Craigslist. Tell us how it came to be. Uh,
1: again, you know, right place, right time. Um, we have a good I'll, pattern here. And I'll well, and I'll you know, there's a lot to be said for luck. Um, I had actually taken a bunch of years off after investment banking when it was a good time no longer to be an investment banker. Uh, and I decided to move on to something else. I took some time off, was able to stay home, you know, help raise my kids, get my kids off to college. Once they left, I really wasn't going to be a good golfer for the rest of my life. So I decided, you know, so it was, you know, fortunately, I got a good swift kick from my wife who said, get back to work. And I was also fortunate to, you know, run into an old law school classmate who's the CEO of Aris And you know, he had said that he wanted to do this. We can talk about why in a bit, but that he wanted to do – to add social impact to the work he did. And, you know, it was a high priority for him. He just didn't have the time to do it, and so he was out looking for a way to do that. And so, you know, we have to talk, and it's – you know, it in many ways seemed like an ideal position for me. Um, and it – I like to think that it has been. Um
0: well, let's let's talk a little. So what, what was Mark's thought process? So a lot of firms uh, want to have a corporate social responsibility group or a, a foundation. Uh, what was going through Mark's mind when he connected with you?
1: So he had talked to several people and a number of people that he knew and respected were pushing him to, to do more. And to use technology in different ways. We we all very much grew up in Silicon Valley over the course of the last going on 40 years. And we've seen, as noted earlier, enormous changes in the world driven by stuff that's happened in a 20-mile radius from where I live. And yet there are lots of pockets in the world, in the country, where those changes haven't made their way. Yes, lots of people have cell phones, but... Lots of people are probably, you know, maybe worse off than they were 40 years ago, and so the comment that was made to him was, you know, similar to a comment that I think it's on our website. I forget, you know, one of the science fiction writers, right? You know the you know the future is here now. It's just not evenly distributed, Mm -hmm. Uh, and so the question is, how can we could we be part of a more even distribution of knowledge to help improve society? Uh, can we take the things that we do that many of us take for granted and get them to people who uh, who, who don't have access to them? And so that was the vision. How that's been realized has obviously changed over time, who our customers should be, who's doing interesting work, who's capable of deploying new technology solutions. But fundamentally, that's been where we've gone. It's finding pockets places where – uh, where our technology can help make social changes.
0: Yeah. Uh, would you mind sharing some of those? And I would encourage uh, our listeners, use your favorite search engine and uh, look up AERIS and uh, click on the uh, AERIS IoT for good tab. But Harry, tell us about some of the things you've had an opportunity to do.
1: So I'll, I'll point to two of them in particular. Um, and there's a, there's a broad range, you know, both in – you know, um, access to energy and power, in agricultural services, in medical services, you know, almost anything if you can imagine somebody in, you know, in a very poor, underdeveloped company, you know, country uh, without, you know, with very low income, there are ways that, you know, using the internet of things, internet things can help get access to those things we take for granted in daily life. So one, the 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 probably the most successful area for us in terms of size is in the area of access to energy. Uh there are 600 million people in Africa, sub-Saharan Africa primarily that don't have access to the power grid. They're you know what they use for energy are kerosene lamps, um, charcoal, you know the 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 thing we take for granted of flipping on a light switch, you know, 600 million people don't don't have. Uh, and yet there are now there are companies that are starting out uh, that have in the last five to ten years or so, probably five years, that have uh, uh, built a business model around selling access to energy uh, by selling solar panels and batteries. Uh, the batteries, you know, take in the energy from the sun. They use, use to the charge Everything from a small LED lamp to a uh, to cell phones to you know the lamps so that that the 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 child can do homework in the evening to cell phones to fans to televisions small televisions to even to fridges. uh, and the advances have been remarkable, you know, spurred in part by the tremendous decline in the cost of solar panels, uh, the improvement in battery, the steady improvement in battery technologies, and so, you know, there are you know several million people now that have access to power. Uh, wh- why is that relevant to us? Because almost all of those models are based on a pay-as-you-go model, because the people that use them don't have access to credit, don't have probably don't have bank accounts, and so the way they pay for it is they use their mobile phones and mobile money, and they pay for the service a dollar, a couple dollars at a time for a week, and they ultimately pay the, you know pay off the devices over a year, two, three years uh, by not having to use kerosene, which has horrible health effects, which is terribly polluting of the environment, and which is expensive, and so – you know, by using solar power to bring access to energy, to bring energy access, you have, you know, climate effects, um, you have, uh, you know, wealth effects, you, people can, you know, better, better education, so you can improve livelihoods, um, you can clean up the environment. So, you know, tremendously successful area uh, around that. Uh, and, and those 600 people will probably not have access to a grid ever in their lifetimes. You're just not going to extend the grid that far out. So, you know, that which we take for granted day in and day out, the Internet of Things give you the ability to, you know, new solutions, new ways to solve problems. Um, <clears throat> second example I'll give you is a company that we're doing a lot of work with called Hello Tractor. Um, incredibly fun company, a great idea. Uh, started from the fact that uh, in Nigeria – you know there is the lowest, you know, lowest utilization of tractors for farming of almost anywhere in the world. I mean, lower, lower even than most of uh, most of the rest of Africa, and that's a huge problem because, you know, in local villages, you know, the kids will leave and go to migrate to the urban environments, um, and this is true across Africa, leaving you know a real deficit of people to help plant. Uh, there's no, again, access to finance, to buy tractors. They're too expensive for a smallholder farmer with an acre or maybe two acres of land. You're not going to spend, you know, several thousand dollars for a, tracker, for a tractor. Uh, and so – and then the result of all this is that people tend to plant too late. They don't have – you know, the, their, their yields aren't as good. And so you end up with a deficit of, you know, food and all sorts of other problems. So, Hello Tractor is essentially Uber for tractors. They've created a model. We work with them to help them out uh, by getting them access to location data and things like that, so that someone in a village can buy a tractor, raise the financing for it, and then, you know, ha- basically a, f- a rental usage. You know, rent out the use of the tractor for a couple hours here, a couple hours there to local, f- you know, smallholder farmers to, you know, for the three or four times a year they might need a tractor. They can get it, schedule it, you know, all on a, you know, through SMS messages and you know through a handheld mobile app. It's a great product. It's a great idea and can have a you know dramatic effect on you know food production.
0: And there are other arenas, including uh, vaccine preservation, water. Any any other examples you care to lift up? I, I know there are many.
1: Uh, so you know, access to water. Almost you know there you know anything that any examples any situations that require an investment or opportunities for both Internet of Things connectivity, pay-as-you-go models, which is to say someone finances it, but they use mobile money and pay-as-you-go and you turn on and off. Uh, So access to water is one. You know, access to water is viewed as a fundamental right, not necessarily free, but at least access to clean water. And yet these are expensive. And so you get all sorts of You know, aid organizations will come in, sink a well, put a pump in, and then the well breaks and nobody fixes it. Well, if you know it's not working, if you get a signal out through through a sensor and an IoT device that says, hey, you need to come fix this, then that gives people the incentive to do that. And that's been a huge problem in development with people happy to spend $15,000 to sink a well, but nobody bothers to maintain it. So you see wells that are side by side. This one broke, that one broke, that one broke. Um, Better just to find a way to maintain them. It's a lot cheaper. Uh, Vaccines are an issue around the world. Uh, There are, you know, the the statistic is that if they're not monitored carefully, vaccines have a very narrow tolerance range. And if they get too hot, too cold, uh, too, too cold as well, if you freeze a vaccine, you'll render it ineffective. And so, uh, being able to monitor the temperature to keep a cold chain of, you know, you know, ensuring that it was kept between that temperature bound for the course of its travels um, and to get an alert that says, hey, something's wrong with the refrigerator. One of the power cells out. You got to come fix it. Now you can, you know, you can dramatically increase your, the, the, the e- efficacy of the vaccines you use, the number of them that remain um, working and viable so that people aren't getting you know, a 50-50 shot of getting a vaccine that isn't really effective anymore. Um, there are all sorts of examples around around that, around um, treatment for tuberculosis and, um, and AIDS diseases where people have to take their medicine. And you want to know that, you know, adherence to medication regimes is a huge problem. Uh, people, especially for TB, which, you know, which requires in many cases a six-month course of medicines, if you don't if you stop after a month or so number 1 you don't really cure the disease number 2 this is where disease re- where uh, medication resistant you know disease strains come in because people you kill some but not all of them and so that's why it's really important that people you know as most people in this country know if somebody says take an antibiotic for 10 days you take it for 10 days not 6 right same thing with tb and so you know ensuring that people stay the course on the drugs by having a monitoring system that says you didn't take your medications for the last three days, what's going on?
0: So, if uh, if one of our listeners uh, was inspired, uh, you know, thought of, of some world problem to which Eris could be a solution, uh, how do you filter people coming to you with with opportunities and applications?
1: I'm happy to talk to anybody. Um, that said, it's you know, and there you know there are. The question from our perspective is how we can help, right? If, if there are – if someone has an IoT, an Internet of Things-based solution to solve a problem, we will certainly try to figure out, figure out a way to help. Uh, there are all sorts of companies doing interesting things in in, in attacking problems – And frankly, one of the areas that's most interesting to us uh, is getting to a part of the world where people think locally, where people attempt to address the problems in their neighborhood. One of the problems, one of the concerns that led to what we do is that people tend to be pretty myopic, and it's one thing for somebody who is working in Silicon Valley to focus on the problems they, that they care about and affect them of, you know, whether they can, you know, what's the best way to be able to get a reservation for a hot restaurant? It's another thing for someone to come out of Berkeley or the Stanford Design School or somewhere else and say, ah, I have a way to solve a, a problem. So, for example, uh, you know, uh, infant jaundice, you know, you have to – the way you approach that is very different in Kenya than it would be if you're living in Palo Alto mm-hmm. or San Jose. And, and and so, you know, there are lots of very smart people who come out of this area with, you know, with great ideas to solve problems in the developing world and we love working with them. But the step beyond that are people who are local who see problems that I would never see or somebody from Stanford or Berkeley would never see in a slum in Kenya or – you know, outside of, you know, a slum in Mumbai or a very poor village somewhere that's remote in, you know, Tanzania or Uganda. And so helping to get smart people, and there are many of them who are local to think about ways to solve problems locally is, I think, one of the major goals, long-term goals of the project to make people aware of what Internet of Things solutions can do so they can say, you know, if we were doing this, we could solve that problem in our part of the world. So it's not people like me trying to solve problems in Nigeria or Liberia or Ghana. Mm -hmm. So working with local people is really, really important.
0: So, Harry, on your your path from lawyer, investment banker, head of social impact, some of our listeners aspire to be where you are. Would you do it all over again? Um, Looking back, uh, would you have wanted to land in a social impact role sooner or how do you analyze your path thus far?
1: Oh, that's a great question and really impossible to answer, of course. (laughs) Uh, you, You know, as we talked about, there just aren't that many jobs of what I do, but there are certainly lots and lots of people who, especially around here and the people that I've met during the time I do this, who who could have done exactly what I did, who cho- choose to do a different path, or people who come out of – you know stanford with an engineering degree and who choose not to go work at google or facebook but try and solve a problem you know somewhere else um you know that that's that's really hard to do i mean you know i in many ways i took paths of least resistance um and they worked for me and i ended up where i did by happenstance and luck and you know by a desire to want to do it by grabbing the ring when it, when I saw it. So it would have been easy to pass up for something else. Uh, you know, should I have started earlier? That's an impossible question, but one I think about all the time. Uh, I think it's – it boils down to how actively you go out and search for things like that versus do you do it passively? I would argue that I was a little more passive, but the opportunity came my way. Um, i I think that the features that are important and and relevant are ones of resilience and adaptability and the you know you know the fact that you can see something and switch and you don't just say back to an earlier question, okay, I'm a lawyer, this is what I'm going to be for the rest of my life. My wife still calls me a lawyer um even though I haven't practiced law in twenty five years and probably wouldn't be very good at it at this point uh, but you know the notion of being open to other experiences and willing to try and willing to fail, which is a great quality that lots of people in Silicon Valley have. Uh, You know, the notion that, you know, if you see something, go ahead. and It looks fun. Go ahead and do it, right? Why not? You know, just put your best effort into it. So, yeah, I I don't know that these kinds of opportunities even existed 30 years ago. I mean, I don't – which is – a good thing for us now that we're even doing it, probably the fact that we were maybe a little blind to things we could have done, but who's to say?
0: Yeah. So, uh, Harry, some people, some of our guests on the program are devout and fall within a particular spiritual framework. You Shared in our, our conversation uh, prior to this, uh, that that really isn't the, the case for you. Would you mind sharing a little bit about uh, what drives you and you know, kind of your take on spirituality in, in general? You know what uh, you know what what sense do you have that drives you in the world?
1: Uh, I think there are a couple of them that I would point to. Uh, I'd say two in particular. One, I grew up Jewish, which means I am Jewish, and the notion of tikkun olam. Pr- pr- You know, repairing the world Mm -hmm. is one that is deeply ingrained. I think more than that, though, you know, as as I've alluded to, you know, I just I'm just so incredibly fortunate with the situations I've landed, both where I started and where I've landed. Uh, And, you know, had I been born, you know, in, you know, a slum in Kenya, I would not have been here as 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 bright and charming and funny and you know intelligent as I am and diligent and hardworking, I don't think I would have been here had I been born in you know one of the slums of you know. Or, you know. So you know, I think that far too few people around here are willing to admit that, which I think is a problem Silicon Valley has. Uh, and I think Silicon Valley has been, as I said, very myopic and. In many ways, created as many problems as it solved. Um, you know, we've you know the technologies cost lots of people, lots of jobs, and I think we have an obligation as individuals, people, humans, to you know to try and repair that, to you know to pay back you know the good fortune that I've had. If you know the idea of sort of walking through life and not being aware of that is just anathema. So you know, we look at, you know, the self-driving cars that could put, you know, millions of truckers out of work. You know, that's, you know, we're all complicit in that in one way or the other, and I think it's incumbent upon us to see how can we, you know, make the world a better place for people that either never had access to them in the first place, that didn't have the advantages that I did, um, or that, you know, we're hurting in other ways. You know, there are you know, you know, I grew up as an, you know, I trained in school and beyond as an economist. And, you know, it's, it's a good thing to make the pie better, but it's necessary to redistribute that bigger pie in ways that it's not – when you make a pie bigger, it doesn't always get distributed evenly. And so, you know, taking care of the people that don't get their fair share is something that to me is inherent in the nature of economic growth.
0: Harry, tell us a little bit about your your life outside of work, uh, your family, some of the things that uh, that you're involved in outside of Aris.
1: Yeah. So, so the real short answer to that is that I support my wife, who's the real doer in the family, and uh, you know she's got a remarkably positive outlook, and you know both you know trying to trying to shape politics and uh, uh, shape the political environment to. To achieve a better, juster, more moral you know outcome you know she 's the one who 's responsible for uh, President Obama coming to the house, but she 's also on the on the, uh, the on the board of Human Rights Watch, which I think is an amazingly effective organization, albeit a small one uh, you know they are you know they 're focused on human rights around the world and all kinds of things and it 's you know it, that the people that work there are just astounding and remarkable every single one of them, to my mind, both practical and centered and realistic about the challenges, but yet focused day in and day out and really, you know, bring, you know, you know, in, you know, in, in improving human rights for everybody. So, I mean, that that's probably the one that is, I admire most.
0: What are you seeing with, with your own, your children in their 20s? Not that you have to get specific by name, but any trends you're seeing, things that they have learned from from you and your wife, some of the things we've talked about, directions they're headed?
1: Well, none of them want to be lawyers. That's <laughs> the first thing I'd say. Um, I, you know, I, my, my kids are all, our kids are all, every, every one of them is different, uh, both my kids and my stepkids. I mean, every one of them is different from the other in ways. And you know, they all, you know, much to their credit, they all take some of this you know some of the impact stuff much more seriously into heart than I ever did at this age. You know, one is teaching first graders in a low income area of Washington D.C. One's working on you know biotechnology, to, you know, for you know for you know for energy, better sources of energy, and you know. But they, they all, it's all part of how they grew up, and so they're much more aware of it and you know, aware of politics, aware of the things that matter. And I, I, you know, every one of them, you know, I love them for that.
0: Any professional or personal goal yet to achieve?
1: Just do more of what we're doing now better. You know, we, you know, we're, we've made great progress, but, you know, the Internet of Things is going to creep through, um, you know, everything that people do. You know, it's, in part, it's, you know, we've been successful because the cellular networks on which we you know, which we thrive are far stronger relatively in the developing world and more necessary than they are, you know, in the U S you have wifi and lots of the developing world. You don't even have that. So, you know, what we do is has all sorts of applications and, you know, I just like meeting the people I meet doing what we do. And I think there are all kinds of great models, solutions that will come as what we do becomes more known and, uh, um, you know, more accessible.
0: So last question, I ask all of our our guests on the program, uh, Harry, how do you define success?
1: I define success by getting up every day, doing your best, making progress, and ultimately moving the needle forward. Ultimately, um, not so much seeing results, but seeing paths towards results. It's, particularly in the social impact world and in, in the world what my wife does, you know, it's the path can be so long and the setbacks so many that you can't come in every day and say, I want, you know you know, I, I want there to be no more hunger in the world. Right? It's it's you kinda sort of have to look at you have to you just have to look at the journey and just feel like you're moving forward in your journey. It's the end result is too hard, too far off and will inevitably different than you think. So, you know, to me, success is resilience to change, you know, a path that makes sense and, you know, and, you know, a goal of, of, of doing good in one form or another. And I think if you just sum up you know, you know, sum up a mantra of doing good, I think you've, you've gone a, a very long way towards success. Excellent. Harry,
0: thank you so much for your time on the program today. Again, if you want to learn more about Harry's work, look up AERIS in your favorite browser and uh, take a look at the IoT for Good tab. Harry, again, thank you so much. Thank you, John. It was a pleasure.